0: Father it is because of your great love that we are not consumed it is because of your great mercy that if we're healthy we're healthy if we're alive it's because of your mercy and Lord we pray that you would make us people who see the justice of your wrath who do not question you, do not side with the wicked, do not decide that we're going to put you in the dock and bring you to trial. Lord, we pray that you would make us people who who accept your justice and your righteousness and who recognize the enormity of your mercy in our lives. Father, we pray that you would cause us to feel your goodness, cause us to feel the fact that you will remember us as we look at this text this morning. Lord, we pray that you would write the law on the tablet of our hearts, that you would make this passage and these truths part of the fabric of who we are. Lord, we pray that you would make us people in whose heart is your law. Make us people who are thereby anointed with the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we pray that as a result of our experience of your justice and mercy, Lord, we pray that you would transform us and make us people who are characterized by the fruits of the Holy Spirit as well. And We ask that you'd bring this about in the name of Jesus. Amen. I would invite you to open this morning to Genesis chapter 8, and as you turn there, we're to that part in the flood when Noah gets off the boat. And as I was reflecting on uh, the, the state of our world and the state of Noah's world, what it would, would have been like for Noah to recognize that the whole world had been, had been fundamentally Changed by the flood, that, it, that as the Lord said, it was wiped clean. He, he had wiped out all of mankind, and the only things that remained alive in the world were those that were with Noah in the ark, and of course those that could swim in the waters. But as, as I reflected on what it would be like for Noah to confront this new world with all of its new opportunities, I thought about this podcast that I listened to several years ago. Um, NPR has this podcast known as Planet Money, and on this particular podcast, they were talking about the invention of the spreadsheet. And a- as they as they related what this was like for in the early days of the of the computer, when someone had first programmed what we now refer to as something like an Excel spreadsheet, or, or you know one of those one of those electronic uh, programs, when that was first invented the change that it brought about. And what they did was they took, they took their listeners back to the time prior to the invention of the, the spreadsheet and they talked about what accountants had to do. Accountants would have these large sheets of paper, 11 by 17, and they would have these big desks and sometimes they had to tape multiple pieces of paper together and then they would have these columns and these rows and they just had to factor all those numbers by hand. And so if one of their clients came to them and said, well, you've got all of my business there in your literal spreadsheet that's spread out on your table, what if I make my chocolate bar a little bit larger? Well, that's going to affect the value in this column at this point in the row, and now what I'm going to have to do is spend the rest of the day recalculating all of these boxes by hand. And it was very time-consuming, and there were, there, were, there were a lot of people involved, bookkeepers and people that checked the work and so forth, and accounting services were very expensive. And then somebody invents the, this electronic document, on a, on a machine whereby you can push a button, and all of a sudden all the calculations are done, and there's no need to check them because the computer doesn't make mathematical errors. And, and one of these guys, they talked about how um, he, he received a job from one of his clients, and he plugged all the values into his spreadsheet, and he pushed the button, and he got the answers, and then he sat on the information for two days. And then he took the information back to the client, and the client said, how did you get this done so quickly? And, and what, they, what they realized was that many, many people were going to be put out of work by the spreadsheet. Many, many people were no longer gonna have a job because of this invention, that, that this new technology that had come into being. And it fundamentally altered, but it also it also lowered radically the price of accounting services, which made it so that a lot more accountants had a lot more work to do, and they could, they could invest themselves in probably more beneficial uh, endeavors than sitting there and calculating all those boxes and so forth. So I, th- I think that Noah, he needed to come off the boat with the attitude of, there's a lot of opportunity here, not... I want my old world back. And we're in a situation that is similar where hopefully, I mean, I know that people have lost their jobs. I hope that your ingenuity and your creativity and maybe your dreams are awakened and you see new opportunities and and you're going to see new ways to serve others. So as we look into uh, Genesis 8 today, you know, this week I was asked, what is, what is one of the most significant ways that biblical theology can be applied to our hearts? And what, what we're going to see in this passage, I think, is one of the ways that understanding how the Bible story works helps us to imp- apply its teaching to us, because what we do is we find our identity with the people of God, and we identify with someone like Noah, and and we approach the new world that we're going to enter on the other side of these, these regulations, we approach that new world the way that Noah approached his new world. We're going to have a fresh set of opportunities to live for Christ. We're going to have a fresh set of opportunities to set new patterns of behavior with the people that we normally interact with. We're going to have a fresh set of opportunities to to go after gospel conversations, a fresh set of opportunities to open our eyes and see how people need to be served and then look for, pe- look for ways to love them as Christ would love them. So what we want to do is we want to think about Noah and where he was, and then we want to think of ourselves as someone like Noah who has been delivered by God from the wrath of God and who has, has an opportunity to live for the glory of God. Uh, so hopefully you've turned by this point to Genesis chapter 8, and in these first five verses, we're going to see the waters recede, and we're going to see the world like a new creation. So I would invite you to look with me at, at Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, where we encounter this first phrase, but God remembered Noah. Uh, this, this phrase could lead to some misunderstanding, you know, it's it's been... Uh, right, right before this, in the last words of verse uh, of chapter seven, verse twenty-four, the waters prevailed on the earth one hundred and fifty days. You should not think, okay, it's been five months, and God forgot about that guy floating around in the boat. And then, oh yeah, there's that guy Noah. No, that's not that's not what this signifies. That this is not the God of the Bible. He doesn't forget things in that way. What does this mean that God remembered? Noah. Well, let me invite you to look at a couple of other places where we're we're told, you don't have to turn there if you don't want to, I'll tell you about them. Genesis 19 verse 29, this is when there, there are actually a lot of parallels. When we get to Genesis 19 and we read about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, we're going to read a lot of language and phrases that are really reminiscent of the flood and the way that God rained down destruction at the time of the flood is the same way that he'll rain down destruction at the time of Sodom and Gomorrah. And in Genesis 19:29 we read, so it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow. Now, if we think about that, what, what that means, that means God has made these covenant promises to Abraham, things like, I'm going to bless those who bless you. And what God is doing as he remembers Abraham by delivering Lot is God is being faithful to his covenant with Abraham. And then another instance of this, same language, same author, same language, same concepts. Moses is telling you know, a unified story. In Exodus chapter 2, verse 24, God heard the groaning of the children of Israel, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, and with Isaac, and with Jacob. Now back in Genesis 6, the Lord tells Noah in Genesis 6, 6, 18, I will establish my covenant with you. So when we read in Genesis 8, 1, God remembered Noah I think what what we're reading is that God is going to be faithful to his covenant with Noah. Brothers and sisters, God has entered into covenant with us through the death of the Lord Jesus. This is what we celebrate when we take the Lord's Supper together. And again, I want to urge you to pray that the Lord would hasten the day when we can again take the Lord's Supper together. As we we take that cup and we rehearse the words of the Lord Jesus who said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. What happened on the cross is that Christ inaugurated the new covenant between himself and his people. If God has entered into covenant with his people, God is going to remember his people, which means he is going to be faithful to his covenant. So I hope that as you read of God remembering Noah your confidence is stoked that God is going to remember you. God is going to be faithful. If you are a believer in Jesus, if you have placed your hope in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and you have experienced the blessings of the new covenant, God is going to remember you. So God remembered Noah, Genesis 8, 1, and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. Uh, Notice, how there's this phrase right before this in chapter seven, verse twenty three with him in the ark," and then again here in eight one, with him in the ark. Uh, I, there's There's a kind of uh, mirroring of the the material in chapter chapter eight with the material in chapter seven. And this is easiest to to see when we look at the the time periods that have been enumerated. There, it's, there, there's more to it than this, but I would draw your attention to how in seven, four the Lord says, in seven days I will send rain on the earth. And then in 7.10, there's another reference to seven days. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. And then uh, in verse 12, rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And then we get 40 days mentioned again in 7.17, and then we get the reference to 150 days in 7.24. And then in 8.3, you read again of the 150 days, 8, 6, 40 days, and then um, 7, I'm sorry, 8, 10, 7 days, and then 8, 12, another 7 days. So just to put that all together quickly, the numbers go 7, 7, 40, 150, 150, 40, 7, 7. There's a, there's a chiastic structure to the the passage where the the numbers correspond to one another. And there are other elements like this this with him in the ark uh, on either side of that reference to 150 and 724. Uh, So the the passage has been carefully structured as as a literary masterpiece. Um, So all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark, again, God cares for all that he has made. The Lord loves his creation. And then we read there in 8.1, God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. In Hebrew, the word for spirit is the same as the word for wind. So uh, the, in, in, in Hebrew, the word that, that's here is there's a, God made a ruach to blow over the earth, ruach being the word for wind and spirit. And this recalls the way that at the beginning of creation, in Genesis one one, uh, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was uh, formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The Ruach of God was hovering over the waters. So there's a similarity here between The Ruach over the waters in Genesis 1-2, and now the Ruach over the waters here in Genesis 8, and then also in Genesis 1, you'll remember that God had separated the waters and caused the dry land to appear, and now what he's done is he's opened up the fountains of the deep and the windows of heavens and caused the rains to fall, and the waters have closed over the dry lands, decreating the world so that when God once again sends the Ruach over the waters... And once again, the waters recede and allow the dry land to appear. What we get here is a kind of new creation. So the waters are going to recede and a new creation is going to appear. And there's a significant pattern here because as Chris read in 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter sees the destruction of what he calls the first world by water, and then the emergence of a new world as a kind of pattern that's going to be fulfilled or repeated when, at the end of all things, God purges the world with fire and then makes a new heaven and new earth appear on the other side of that. So, God made a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided, and then all the things that were opened up in 7-11... 7-11, 7-11, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of, heavens were, windows of the heavens were opened, and rain, seven twelve fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Now in 8-2, the fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. So the waters prevail over the earth for five months, five 30-day periods. And then in verse 4, in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Now, uh, Moses does not overtly make a connection here to the book of Leviticus, but uh, the same Moses that wrote Leviticus is the same Moses that wrote Genesis and he he would would not have been unaware of what I'm about to tell you and that is that in the book of Leviticus the 7th month is tremendously important you you have several significant feasts including the day of atonement and and one of those feasts starts on the 10th day of the month and goes for 7 days till the 17th day of the month so Moses is recording time periods that will later in Israel's history become very significant and that are going to have connotations of forgiveness and atonement. So the floodwaters have come, and now in the month when sins are going to be dealt with later in the Pentateuch, the waters begin to recede because the wrath has been poured out. And the ark comes to rest, uh, interestingly, that that uh, that it would be worded this way because uh, Noah's name means rest, and and there's a form of Noah's name used when it speaks of the ark coming to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Uh, we're going to see as as we make our way through this passage that Moses is going to play on. He has been playing on Noah's name a lot in the wording of this. Um, the mount, there there is a a mountain called Ararat today, and it's it's a seventeen thousand foot uh, peak, and um, and and yet we're not told that it was that particular mountain. Um, these are the mountains of er- so it could have been somewhere in in that range. And uh, I just I can't help but wonder how it was that the ark came to rest in the mountains. I mean, was it sort of on a hillside? Was it was it lodged on a I mean, I don't like heights. I don't like ridges and cliffs and things like this. Did it open with, with a, a drop beneath it? I mean, you just we, we're not told these details. But I think in all of this, Noah would have had to trust the Lord. He would have had to trust God. Can, can you imagine having experienced the flood and then knowing that your ongoing life depends upon the mercy of God to, to sustain you? It's really where all of us are, whether we realize it or not. Verse 5, the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. So the waters are gradually receding, and the mountaintops become visible. Let me just stop and and offer you a couple of of, uh, summarizing applications here. Uh, Number one we should be confident in response to this account of the flood that God is going to save his people. God is going to save his people. God promised to Noah, I'm going to establish my covenant with you. And then, through overwhelming destruction, God delivered Noah's life. God preserved him alive in the floodwaters. So we should be confident that whatever happens to us in life, God is going to save his people. And then, number two, we are dealing, we are reading here of a sovereign creator. And there is no aspect of his creation that is going to overcome him, that is somehow going to get the better of him. He made the world and he controls the world. And then, as a kind of, as a kind of observation on sort of the flow of the narrative, I want to quote Ken Matthews from his commentary on the book of, of Genesis. Uh, observing how the, the, the waters, it rained for 40 days and 40 nights, and then the waters prevail for 150 days, and then it's going to take a long time for those waters to recede. And Ken Matthews observes, often in life, troubles come on fast and recede slowly. Troubles come on fast, and we can think of Job. This was true in Job's case. In one day, he got this series of bad news. And then there's this long book before he's finally restored. And this is sometimes the way that life works. And the Bible is everywhere urging us to be faithful, to persevere, to hold on. And then lastly, I want to observe here that Noah, from what we see throughout this passage, Noah is not shaking his fist at God. Noah is not saying to the Lord, how dare you do such a thing? How how could you send a flood that would wipe out? No, that's not Noah's attitude at all. I think that Noah concurs with God's justice. And he recognizes nobody deserves to live. Nobody deserves to experience ongoing life. And anyone who is alive is alive by God's mercy. So I don't know if you've ever talked to somebody... Who has said something like this about the God of the Bible? I just can't believe in a God who would send a flood and destroy all humanity. Well, you don't believe in a God who has standards then. You don't believe in a God who is holy then. You don't believe in the God of the Bible who has mercy then. So I don't know, I, I don't know where you're going to get a, a an idea of a God that's better than that of the God of the Bible, but we are really not in position to critique our Creator. And and Noah is not about. Noah is the one who has experienced this, and he's not critiquing the creator, as we'll see as we continue. So, in verses one through five, the waters recede, and a new creation appears. In verses six through twelve, we have the raven and the dove. Uh, I'm going to read through this passage, and then we'll come back and talk about uh, about it piece by piece. So, verse six: at the end of forty days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. And went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth, was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. The first thing I want to observe about this is that when Noah sends forth the raven in verse 7, he sends forth an unclean bird. And, And this is not going to be one of the only two, because Probably these birds have been reproducing on the ark, but this unclean bird is also a scavenger. He's a a bird of prey, and so the raven probably does not return because there's plenty of uh, death floating on the surface of the waters for the raven to satisfy itself upon. He can probably perch on these floating carcasses and and corpses and uh, feast upon them, and so he's not going to need to come back to Noah The dove, by contrast, Noah sends a dove in verse 8, and a dove is not a scavenger. It's not a ravenous, carcass-eating kind of of bird. It's actually a clean animal, and the dove features prominently in the regulations for Israel's sacrifices. Um, So the, the dove is used both in sacrifices that are burnt offerings offered up for atonement, and also in sacrifices for purification. So this is obviously going to have, I think, symbolic overtones. Because again, the same author who later in the Pentateuch is telling us about the clean and unclean animals and about which birds are going to be used for sacrifice is writing this passage. And he's going to be aware of these symbolic connotations. And then further, uh, notice in verse 9, the dove found no place um, this is in, in Hebrew. So in Hebrew, the word, the name Noah is noach. And um, you, you, a place to set her foot, this is the word ma-noach. So it's just got the name of place added to the front of Noah's, Noah's name. So um, the ark has come to its noach, but the dove founds no Manoach, noach no place to set her foot. So another play on Noah's name. And then in verse 11... The dove, the animal, or one of the birds that can be offered up uh, as a sacrifice for sin and for purification, came back to him in the evening with a freshly plucked, which indicates that there's new life growing in in the world, olive leaf. And we know what comes from olive trees, don't we? Olives come from olive trees. And we know what people do with olives, don't they? They make olive oil. That's what they do. And later in the Pentateuch, here again. Now, I, w- I want you to hear me carefully here because I'm, I am not doing some sort of fanciful, unwarranted connecting of, of things across the Bible and just sort of making this up. What I'm trying to show you is a way that Noah, the author of this text, intended, a way for us to understand him intending to communicate this symbolism. So olive oil is going to be used... In, in, the, in the anointing oil for the tabernacle, later in the Pentateuch, we'll read about how the tabernacle is to be anointed, and then as you continue across the Bible, Samuel anoints David with oil, and, and as he anoints David, the Holy Spirit comes upon David. So that, the coming of, the the association of the Holy Spirit with uh, the olive oil is going to come later, but nevertheless, there's anointing that's going to be associated with oil in the mind of Moses, and also oil is used to fuel the lamps in the holy place, the menorah. The the seven-pronged lamp in the holy place is fed by oil, and in the book of Zechariah, Uh, these two figures, Jeshua and Zerubbabel, they are referred to as anointed ones, literally the text reads two sons of oil, and it's as though the Holy Spirit on them provides the fuel for this this restored menorah that is symbolically presented in the book of Zechariah, which communicates the, the return of the Holy Spirit to the rebuilt temple. So, what I'm telling you is that anointing oil later in the Bible is going to be associated with the Holy Spirit, but even in the Pentateuch, it's associated with anointing oils. So you've got the dove that connotes sacrifice, and then you've got the oil in the the olive leaf that, that connotes anointing. And this is all going to build through the Old Testament and through the associations of sacrifice and anointing until a time comes... When a man is going to enter into these waters, as this man named John baptizes people for repentance. And John is going to say to this man, I need to be baptized by you. To which the man will reply, Let it be so now that we might fulfill all righteousness. And then, as this man is baptized in the waters by John, the Holy Spirit is going to come down to remain upon him in the form of a dove. And that is the man who will be sacrificed for sins. Now, I want you to hear me. I'm not suggesting that all of that is here in uh, Genesis chapter 8. I am suggesting that Moses would have connected olive oil with the olive leaf, olive, leaf, olive branch, and the, the sacrifices with the doves, and then that other people, are go- other later biblical authors, are going to build upon what Moses does. And as that building happens... This passage is going to take on greater and greater significance, and people are going to see uh, connotations of the presence of the Holy Spirit and the sacrifices for sins that are available at the temple and then fulfilled in the Lord Jesus in the return of the dove with the olive leaf. And then look at what we read here, verse 11, so Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. So I want to suggest to you that because of the the dove and the olive leaf, which we can just take this at the purely physical level, the dove and the olive leaf come back, and Noah knows the wrath is receding. The, ve- the, the, the vehicle by which God has visited wrath, it's, it's been fully and completely poured out, and now it's it's backing away. It's receding. And for us today, Because Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit, because he fulfilled all the sacrifices and more that those doves accomplished, we can know that the waters of God's wrath are not going to overwhelm us. Verse 12 Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. So uh, we have the waters receding, uh, making a new creation in verses 1 through 5, and then we have the raven and the dove in verses 6 through 12, now in verses 13 and 14, it's as though we have a new creation with the dry land appearing. Look at verse 13. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, so new year, new life, first day of the first month, the waters were dried from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark. Um, This is not the word that is used to describe the roof of the ark earlier in the passage that Noah has built. This is a word, the word that's used here, that's translated covering, this word is only gonna be used in the rest of the Pentateuch to describe the covering of the tabernacle. So this is another way that that, that, uh, Moses is forging a connection between the tabernacle and the ark. So Noah removes the covering of the ark, and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. And then verse 14, in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Now, uh, we had 150 days counted until the seventh month back up earlier. We had the seventh month back up in verse 4, and now we've gone through the first month, in verse 13, to the second month. So, 7 to 12 to 2. This is another five months, isn't it? So, another 150 days, another 150-day period has has passed as the waters are, are slowly receding, and now Noah looks out, and the earth had dried out. And now in verses 15 through 19, God says go out. Verse 15, then God said to Noah, go out from the ark. I wonder if this, I would invite you to just turn on your biblical awareness antennae and think to yourself, is there anywhere else in the Bible where the Lord says to someone, go? Genesis 12, right? The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. I think there's a, a similarity here that, that Moses intends us to recognize between Noah being told to go out from the ark and Abraham being told to go from his country. And Noah obeys. And, and this passage, this, this little section of the passage, verses 15 through 19, has uh, a very deliberate repetitive structure where first the people are told to go and then the animals are mentioned and then the people are described as going and then the animals are described as going. Let me just read through it. Verse 15, God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. There's the people in verse 15 and 16. Now the animals in verse 17, bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth And be fruitful and multiply on the earth. And now hear the people again, verse 18. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. And now hear the animals again. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. Now, why would it be structured that way? I think it's structured that way to make one simple point. God said to do it, and they did it. People, animals, people, animals. So obedience is stressed here. And, and along with obedience, I think that the efficacy of the word of God is stressed here. God says go, and they go. This is like creation. God says, let there be light, and there's light. John Calvin wrote, quote, Noah did not move a foot out of his sepulcher without the command of God. That's interesting, isn't it? The ark as a sepulcher, as a, as a coffin in which he is preserved until he's allowed to go out into the new creation for new life. Um, along with the obedience that I think is stressed there, notice how um, the animals in verse 17 are going to swarm on the earth and, and then they're going to be fruitful and multiply. This, I think, is meant to remind us of chapter 1 verse 22 where God blesses the animals and, and says to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas. And then just as the people also in one twenty-eight are going to be told to be fruitful and multiply, uh, when we're together next in Genesis, we'll see in 9.1 that the people also in Genesis 9.1 will be told to be fruitful and multiply. So uh, Genesis 1, animals, Genesis one twenty-two, be fruitful and multiply, and then people, Genesis one twenty-eight, be fruitful and Now, after the flood, animals, Genesis 8, verse uh, uh, 17, be fruitful and multiply. And then people, 9, 1, and following, be fruitful and multiply. There's a a parallelism, uh, a paralleling of Noah with Adam. And then that brings us to the conclusion here. And this is really why I say that Noah's not mad at God. Noah's not mad at God. Noah's not questioning God's justice. I would suggest to you that Noah's overwhelming sense is of God's mercy. I think what we see right here reflects that Noah understands I deserve to die just like the rest of humanity. I don't deserve life any more than they did. And what God has shown me is mercy. And so what he feels is gratitude and a desire to worship this God who has shown him such mercy And I want to suggest to you that if you are alive, if you are hearing the sound of my voice, you ought to feel the same way. None of us deserves to avoid the coronavirus. None of us deserves to avoid the wrath of God. And and the fact that, that you are alive to process the words that I'm speaking in your active brain shows that God is being merciful to you. God is is lovingly extending to you an opportunity to repent of your sins and to trust in the Lord Jesus as your Savior. For the very first time, in all of the book of Genesis, and and I would assume in the history of the world, Genesis 8.20, Noah built an altar to Yahweh. I'm not saying they haven't worshipped before this, but the worship that we've seen earlier in chapter 4, Uh, verse 26 was, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And we don't read of an altar being built prior to this in the book of Genesis. Noah built an altar to Yahweh. And then look what he does. He took some of every clean animal. So I mentioned how there were were seven pairs of all the clean animals. And I suggested that this was for sacrifice. And we can see that here. He took some of every clean animal animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Never, n- neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. Now, let's think about several aspects of what happens there in verse twenty one. Um, the Lord smells the pleasing aroma. There's no suggestion here that the Lord is hungry. And everywhere in the Bible, the God of the bible is is fully, self-sufficient. He says in Psalm 50, do I drink the blood of bulls and goats? Uh, He says to the the people who are not worshiping him the way that he wants to be worshiped, he says to them, if I were hungry, I would not tell you. But in our our sinfulness, people have invented wicked stories about, about it's like they're groping for the living God, but they're coming up with all these false ideas. And in, in, in these distorted flood accounts that you can read. You, you can read in the Epic of Gilgamesh or in, in the accounts of Atrahasis that the gods are actually hungry, and that's why they bring an end to the flood. And they're actually, even though they were trying to kill everybody, they're actually glad that Utnapishtim, survived the flood so that he can feed them and and they pounce eagerly upon the sacrifices that are offered. That is not the the portrayal here of the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is not some unworthy, insufficient God who cannot take care of his own needs. Uh, The God of the Bible is a God whose justice has been poured out and whose whose justice has been satisfied, and who provides sacrifice as a covering for sin, and he's pleased with this worshipful, devoted, believing offering of sacrifice that Noah has offered. And then with this, again, there, there are these plays on Noah's name, because the, word, the name Noah is Noach, and the soothing aroma is a Nikoach, So it's like a a variation of Noah's name. So we've had rest playing on the name of Noah. We've had soothing aroma uh, playing on the name of Noah. We had wipe out, which is machah, as opposed to noach, which is also very close to the name Noah. And then the other significant wordplay throughout this passage flows really out of Genesis 5, 29, at the naming of Noah. Uh, Lamech called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord is cursed, this one shall bring us relief, and that's Nakam. So he names him Noach, saying, This one will bring us Nakam. And then when the Lord regrets that he has made man, that's also Nakam. But now it's as though the Lord is he's he's comforted, and 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 Nakam comes in again. With its, with its positive connotation. This one will bring us relief from our painful toil on the land which the Lord has cursed, Genesis 5.29. Alluding back to Genesis 3.17, cursed is the ground because of you. And here the Lord says in Genesis 8.21, I will never again curse the ground because of man. And that repetition of the language of cursing the ground shows us that the flood is really an outworking of Genesis 3.17. The flood, when when the Lord says, cursed is the ground because of you, it's as though he's saying, floods, hurricanes, tornadoes, forest fires, coronavirus, all of this is going to be an outworking of the curse on the ground. And now the Lord is saying, never again am I going to do it to this extent. Not until the all-consuming fire at the end of all things. Neither will I ever again strike down every creature, every living creature, as I have done. And then verse 22, I think verse 22 is again uh, poking at the false ideas of God that people come up with. Because in the pagan religions, I mean, if if you're familiar with the myth of uh, Persephone, who goes down into Hades for the winter and then she comes back up into the living realm and, and the flowers bloom, and so forth. These kinds of myths of dying and rising gods, they just pervade the ancient Near East. And look at what this text says. The Lord says, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So the established order is not a result of the activity of dying and rising gods. It's not a result of Hades seizing his wife and imprisoning her in the underworld or something like that. No, the established order is under the hand of the living God. The God who, in in this whole flow of events, is telling us that he has created a world that is going to come under his judgment, but that folded into that judgment is going to be an opportunity to experience his mercy for those whom he is pleased to save. And this event of the flood and the salvation of Noah is pointing forward to the future salvation. And in all this, there's, there's this rhythm of God's word producing worship. So God says to Noah, go out of the ark. And Noah builds an altar. And over in Genesis 12... God is going to say to Abraham, go from your country. And then in 12.8, Abraham is going to build an altar to the Lord. So the, the, the hearing of God's word produces a mindset that says, this God is worthy of my worship. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for revealing yourself to us in your word. Lord, we praise you that you are a loving God, a God who did not leave us to perish in our ignorance and sin, a God who does not give us what we deserve. Lord, we praise you that even in this text you give us a promise of a new creation and of new life on the other side of the visitation of your wrath And Father, we praise you that you have poured out your your wrath completely. You have fully satisfied your justice in the death of the Lord Jesus on the cross. And God, we pray that you would make us like Noah. Those who, because of our union with Christ, have gone through the waters of your wrath, the waters of baptism, and who have been saved through the Lord Jesus' baptism, in your in the floodwaters of your wrath. Father, we pray that you would make us those who are eager to see new opportunities, eager to worship you, eager to tell of your goodness, eager to heed your word. We ask that you do all this for the glory of the Lord Jesus by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.